Hello, everybody. Um, good morning. My name is Rivi Litvin, and I'm talking to you from across the pond in, from the U.S. I'm representing a ministry called the Hope of Israel Ministry, and uh, that ministry is basically an educational ministry. And what we do, we teach people about the Jewishness of the Bible, okay, both the the Tanakh, the, the so-called Hebrew scriptures, and the New Testament as well. So uh, I've been there before. I'm glad to be with you again, although it's through another medium, through so Zoom, but we are thankful for Zoom during this time. And, um, yeah, we teach uh, the Bible from Jewish perspective because everything that was done that happened within the Gospels and um and everything the New Testament is recording happened within a Jewish context, okay? So it happened with the people of Israel, most of it in the land of Israel, um, with the language of the people of Israel, Hebrew, and um, uh, with the customs of Israel. And, of course, we all know that Jesus was a Jew and that he kept the Torah and kept all the commandments, and uh, so we want to be able to understand it the way it was meant uh, meant to be understood. And that's the reason why we're teaching it, to ex- explore as much truth as we can. And hopefully through all this, we would be able to understand the Bible better, get cl- understand God better, and therefore get closer to him. So that's the aim. Uh, this morning, because we are limited in time, I would like to go straight into the subject we're going to cover. And this is one little section out of the life of Jesus. And this section that we chose for this morning is called Yeshua choosing or Jesus choosing his first disciples. Uh, okay, the text is uh, found in John chapter 1. Verses 35 to 52. So if you like, uh, I'll give you a minute to turn to there. And while you're looking for it, I am, uh, I, I just would like to tell you the word John in Hebrew is the word Yohanan. And that's, that's mean God's mercy. So often I'm using it. So I wanted you to know what it stands for. Okay, so John chapter 1, verses 35 through 52. And I'll read it. Again, the next day, uh, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked upon Yeshua as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And two disciples heard him speak, and they followed uh, Yeshua, and Yeshua turned and beheld them following and say to them, What do you seek? And they say to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. They came therefore and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Okay, so I'm I'm assuming you guys are familiar with the name Yeshua, means salvation in the it's Jesus' name in Hebrew. Okay, so a day after Yohanan made his first declaration that Yeshua was the Lamb of God, he seemed to have made the same statement again, and this time he made it in the presence of his disciples, right? So a day after Yohanan, um, you know, uh, made it, his 
the first time his disciples heard it. And Yohanan was standing with his disciples, probably not only with two of them, but rather with a whole bunch of them, uh, because the Greek word that is used here is Kai, that was translated as Wiz instead of End, and the word Ek was translated as Of instead of Out Of. So, and this is on your handout, you can um, consult your handout. So, in other words, the Greek text says that Yohanan was standing and two out of his disciples. So there were many more there. It leaves room for the understanding that there were several, not just two. Uh, but only two of them at this time overheard him. And the same concept is also reflected in verse 37, where the word there was added to the text. The Greek text does not say, and the two disciples, but rather it says, and two disciples. So again, it gives us the impression that there were more than two disciples standing there. Um, so more than two disciples of Yohanan overheard him identify Yeshua as the Lamb of God, and seemingly they decided to leave Yohanan as a result of it and to follow Yeshua. Right? Yeshua noticed these two strangers following him, and so he confronted them with the question, what do you seek? Or as we would ask, what do you want? Their answer should be conceived at least as strange. After all, he had two strangers following him, and when he demanded to know what they wanted, they just as good Jews do, you know, answered him with another question. Rabbi, where are you staying? Right? Literally, where, where do you dwell? Right? Without understanding of the Hebraic idiom that is used here in the text, this appeared to be kind of a rude behavior uh, on their side. Practically what we call in, call in Hebrew a chutzpah. I'm sure you're familiar with that, right? So, Yeshua did not seem to mind so, but rather he issued them an invitation. Come and will you and you will see. Okay, so let's look at it a little bit more closely. For Yeshua to question why they are following him, that was the most natural thing. Why? Because the question, where do you live or where do you dwell? was quite common in Judaism at the time, in the first century. This was the way by which a disciple used to indicate to a rabbi that he would like to become his disciple. Okay? Why was it done with this particular question? Because during that time, most of the teaching were done by the rabbi at his home. Right? So to sit at the feet of the rabbi meant practically or basically to sit at the, at the home of the rabbi and learn from him. Right? In order to do that, you know, uh, one needed to know where the rabbi lived. How can I become your disciple if I have to come to your home? But I don't know where you live, right? So um, <clears throat> that's why it was done this way. The rabbi had the choice, of course either to accept 
this person as his disciple or to reject him? Yeshua could have responded with the words, it's none of your business. He could have said that, right? Meaning there is no need for you to know because you are not accepted to be my disciple, right? Or as Yeshua did, he could have invited them to come, indicating by this, by this invitation, that they were accepted to become his disciples. Both expressions, Rabbi and come and see, are Hebraic. We do not know when exactly the custom of using the term rabbi originated, but we do know that it went through a progressing process from the word rav to the word rabbi and then to the word rabban. The other two forms probably existed for at least two generations prior to it. And initially the term rabbi meant just a teacher. And it used to refer to anyone who was acknowledged, uh, well, who was knowledgeable, let's say, in the word of God and who was teaching it. So today the, the, the term rabbi is used as a title of a Jewish community leader who has earned the title by graduating from a recognized yeshiva. Yeshiva is a Jewish rabbinic school. And he was ordained, and, and, you know, the yeshiva would ordain him. So it was someone that learned in the yeshiva and was ordained by the yeshiva. The title is used in a similar manner to the title doctor, right? Those who graduated from a certain numbers of years in university and presented the proper work, passed the proper test, and a PhD, and can use, therefore, the title doctor, next to their name. Those who graduated from a certain number of years in a yeshiva, um, done the, the proper work, and and when when they finished, they were ordained, earned the title of a rabbi, and therefore can use that title next to their name. The word rabbi is no longer used today as a reference to a teacher. <clears throat> John recorded here that they indeed came and saw where he lived. And according to the custom, you know, so they could return and in the future and be educated, Yeshua must have invited them to come in. And perhaps he did it because of the late hour. This must have taken place sometimes around December or January. It was winter time, and the sun during this time of the year uh, set in Israel around 4 to 5 p.m., right? So John recorded that it was the 10th hour. In other words, it was 4 o'clock afternoon. It was almost dark, okay? And the reason we count the hours different because we can't count it the daytime started six o'clock in the morning, so that's the first hour we counted down. Okay. The day was over, and so they must have stayed overnight and spent the next day with him. And perhaps they met him on a Friday, which pretty much would have necessitated them staying there um, because they had to stay put throughout the Sabbath. They could not travel. Um 
So, and that was with the exception of attending the synagogue service. Okay, so let's read the rest of the text here from verse 40. Okay, so one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's, Simon's Peter brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. He brought him to Yeshua. Yeshua looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. The next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Yeshua said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to them, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Yeshua saw Nathanael coming to him and said to, of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. Nathanael said to him, how do, how do you know me? Yeshua answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Yeshua answered and said to him, because I say to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than this. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens open." And the angels of God ascending and descending, descending on the Son of Man. Okay, so this is the text. In this section, we are told about uh, four of them that became Yeshua's disciples. The first one mentioned is Andrew. And although Andrew was Jewish, he had a Greek name. The name Andrew was commonly used by the Jews in the first century. Andrew then was one of the two disciples of John who had left John and began to follow Yeshua. The name of the other disciple is not specified, but together with him, five disciples were picked up at this point. Some people believe that the disciple was Thomas and they based it on John chapter 21 verse 2, which really does not communicate it. Other people believe that this is a reference to James, and yet others think that this is a reference to John himself, who was Yeshua's beloved disciple. Okay, Andrew was a Jew, was an, he was an Israelite. His father's name was John. He was the brother of Simon Peter, and he was a resident of Bethsaida in the Galilee. And he was a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. And we know all this from Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. As a fisherman, he probably received a minimal mandatory education at the time in Israel. Uh, that education lasted up to the age of 12. It was mandatory. Israel was the first nation on earth to have mandatory education for children. Later, about a thousand years later, the world caught up with it, okay? So him and his brother Simon 
who also was a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, worked in partnership with James and John, who were the sons of Zebedee. And we know that from Luke chapter 5, verse 10. After he became a disciple, he resumed his work as a fisherman. And after Yeshua established his headquarters in Capernaum, According to the Gospels, he called Andrew, Peter, John, and James into a full-time ministry of being fishers of men, right? And the reference for it is Matthew 4, 18 to 22, Mark 1, 16 to 20, Luke 5, 1 to 11. Okay, so Andrew was among the 12 that Yeshua selected as his apostles, and reference for that is Mark 3.18 and Luke 6.14. In all listing of the 12th in the New Testament, Andrew always appeared among the first four names. Andrew was killed in 60 AD, and according to accounts that, um, that we have from the 4th century AD, he was crucified on a cross that was uh, shaped as an ex, right? Andrew was the one who convinced Peter to, that Yeshua was the Messiah, okay? So Simon Peter was the, then the second um, to become Yeshua's disciple. His original, original name was Shimon, meaning God have heard. And just like Andrew, his father's name was Yohanan. Yeshua changed Peter's name from Shimon to Cephas, which in Aramaic means a stone, right? So this is kind of curious, as Yeshua's mother tongue was Hebrew. The name Petros in Greek also means a stone. The Aramaic name Cephas does not appear in the Synoptic Gospels. There is only, there he is only appearing as Shimon or as Petros. And this is not surprising because Aramaic was not the main language spoken in Israel during this time. Some people believe it was, but that's not historical. It's not right. And nor did the sages teach Aramaic. They taught Hebrew. So the language spoken in Israel at the time was Hebrew. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, we have a word play that seemingly Yeshua made um, made of the words Petros and Petra, okay? This is again strange, taking into consideration that he probably did not speak Greek. It was illegal for Jewish people in Israel to speak Greek at the time. So what's happening here? It is possible that the word Petra became a Hebrew word by a process of adaptation, just like today we have many Hebraic words that have been adapted from other languages and became part of the Hebrew language. Uh, Examples are radio, television, Coca-Cola, telephone, and I can go on, right? Similarly, English also adapted words from Hebrew, such as hallelujah, and amen, and chutzpah, okay? So it appears then that Yeshua's disciples had two Hebrew names, uh, the disciple, I mean, Shimon and Petros. The first one was given to him by his parents, 
and the second one became his nickname. And it is interesting that Petros was not considering being a proper name in Greek, right? Greek-speaking people probably would have been amused to hear that a man was named a stone, okay? Whereas in Hebrew, names have prophetic meanings to them, and a stone would imply much strength, So it is possible that Yeshua, who could see through him, was um, well aware of his prophetic character. Peter is considered to be the main example of New Testament prophet. In the list of the 12 disciples, Peter always appears first, whereas Judas always appeared last. Peter was married and he lived with his wife and his mother-in-law in Capernaum. References are Matthew 8.14 and Luke 4.38. His mother-in-law must have been a wealthy lady because uh, from archaeological excavation, it is evident that she had a large size home that enjoyed a large round courtyard which could be used for gathering and Bible studies. And her house was located very conveniently in the city of Capernaum, in the center of town, right across the synagogue that was there. Peter was a successful fisherman who owned his own boat. That's Luke 5.3. And according to Clement of Alexandria, he had children and his wife suffered martyrdom, okay? Peter was so active that we will need a whole lesson just to discuss him, which we don't have here. Actually, I'm rushing through this to make sure we cover everything. He became extremely dominant among the disciples, and according to the Gospels, to him, the keys of the kingdom were given. Only to him... The angel at the tomb sent a special message. That's Matthew 16, 70. And only to him, Yeshua appeared on the first day after the resurrection. And that is Luke chapter 24, 34, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5. And from all of them, he was commissioned to feed the and defend the flock, right? So it appears that Peter spent the latter part of his life in Rome. He died there in as a martyr death and was buried there as well. Now, we don't know how Andrew convinced him to follow Yeshua other than the fact that he made clear to him that he believes that he found the Messiah, right? Uh, it is the Messiah of whom Moses and the prophets spoke about and yearn for. Although in Judaism, you know, there are many messiahs in Judaism. Here, Andrew did not specify which messiah he was talking about. The following day, Yeshua found Philip and recruited him as well to become one of his of Yeshua's disciples. Philip was also from the town of Bethsaida, just like Andrew and Peter. And most of the references that we have for him are found in the Gospel of John. In the Synoptic Gospels, Philip is barely mentioned. 
according to Saint Christosom, at the time that Yeshua uh, picked him up, he was a married man and had several daughters. Philip was the apostle to the Samaritans. The early church added the words, the apostle to his name, in order to distinguish him from Philip the deacon that is mentioned in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. His name was Greek. We don't know why. Perhaps his parents just liked it, you know. His Greek name possibly was also the reason why the Greeks who came to Passover were looking for him to be a, a mediator between them and Yeshua. And you find a reference for this in John chapter 12, verses 20 to 23. The fact that these people were looking for someone who they assumed is Greek to help them see Yeshua uh, might also be an indication that, that they believe that Yeshua did not speak Greek, which, as I said before, he did not. Okay, Eusebius, a church historian, wrote about him that, quote, he lived as one of the great lights of Asia and that he was buried in uh, Hierapolis along with his two virgin daughters. Okay. And, but there are conflicting traditions concern, concerning his death. It was Philip who approached Nathaniel and attempted to convince him that they had indeed found the Messiah. But as we can see, uh, we can see that Nathaniel was not so anxious, you know, to join them. He was not excited. So the fact that Philip told him that the Messiah they found was from Nazareth was an hindrance factor for him because Nathaniel, Nathaniel then had the question. He, he was not going to accept anything without checking it out. So the fact that Yeshua was from the Galilee, from Nazareth in particularly, was a problem. The first one, the first one had to do with the kind, the first reason had to do with the quality the kind of quality Nazareth could produce, okay? Being located in the Galilee, it was limited. People's opinions of the Galilee during the time were very low. Galilee had gained an infamous image for two reasons. Number one, because it was compared with Judea, okay? And Jerusalem was the habitat of most of the famous rabbis at the time, all the great rabbis, so, and also the great rabbinic academies were located in Jerusalem. Uh, so by way of comparison, there were not many rabbinic academies, if any, operating in the Galilee. According to the Talmud, quote, the Galilean, Galilean as a whole were regarded by Judeans as deficient in their knowledge of the Torah, stupid, having a curious pronunciation, and given to uncouth, uncouth habits. Okay, end of quote. So Jerusalem was also the main place where the rich and the famous chose to dwell, pretty much by necessity, since most of them belonged to the Sadducean party, to the Sadducees, right? That party uh, was involved with the temple worship, 
and temple affairs. So, you know, to be involved with the temple, you needed to live close by. So they had to dwell, to dwell close by. Galilee, on the other hand, attracted Gentiles and uh, came to, well, you know, a lot of Gentiles came to the Galilee in order to sell their merchandise. The Galileans themselves were simple people who, for the most part, lived as farmers and fishermen or had a simple, another simple kind of a trade. The constant chain of foreigners going through their area did not turn them into sophisticated people of the world. Some people think that was not the case. One must wonder how much contact, if any, they really had with them. The Galilee was much poorer than Jerusalem. But the Galilee did produce its own kind of precious wild flowers. These were the pious men that the land nurtured. Okay? People who perhaps were not so highly educated as in the academies in Jerusalem, but rather they educate themselves. They educated themselves. And they were much more knowledgeable in spiritual things. They were also much closer to God. So much so that even the great learned sages uh, of Jerusalem came to solicit their help when they were in need of a miracle. Examples, example of Galilean rabbis from the same time are Rabbi Bendosa and Rabbi Choni Amergel. Okay, number two, uh, the Galilee was also the ground from which the rebel, uh, the rebels movement in Israel sprang out at the time. And the result was that the Romans gave the Galilee a very bad name, right? Bad name of a place that produced rebels and the unwanted bad elements of society, right? Nathaniel, who himself was a Galilean, was well aware of this sad situation. And perhaps somewhat sarcastically, he asked, can any good thing come out of, of here? You know, and Philip did not argue the point with him. Instead, he simply invited Nathaniel to come and see for himself, understanding that Yeshua really could handle him. And indeed, we observe how Nathaniel's mind changed rapidly. The following conversation between the two should make no sense to us whatsoever unless we understand it within its Jewish context. So let's look at it. When Yeshua saw Nathaniel, he said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. So rather than calling him by his name, Nathaniel, Yeshua actually described his character. Nathaniel responded to him rightly. He said, how do you know me? In other words, you have just met me. You know nothing about me. And Yeshua responded, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Okay. So one would assume that this is not such a big deal. Okay, so what? What if Yeshua saw Nathaniel sitting uh, under some fig tree? You know, what does that prove? 
yet it followed by Nathaniel's astonishing statement, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. How in the world did Nathaniel come to this conclusion? You know, from Yeshua's statement that he sat underneath the fig tree. How did he figure out that Yeshua was, as he said, the son of God, right? Just because he told him that he saw him sitting under a fig tree. Well, this was hardly a reason to believe that Yeshua was a great man of God. From Jewish tradition, we know that the rabbis used to teach that if one wanted to, to meditate on the scripture and pray and get a real good session of meditation, have a fruitful time, he should meditate sitting under a fig tree. So fig, fig trees are very common in Israel. It is one of, of Israel's symbols. And sitting underneath it for that purpose seemed to have been a common practice as well. So from here we understand that Nathaniel was not only sitting underneath a fig tree, just to in the rest in the cool of the day, so to speak, but he was sitting there studying the scriptures. So what was so impressive to Nathaniel was not the fact that Yeshua saw him sitting underneath a fig tree, but that Yeshua knew exactly what was in Nathaniel's mind. Yeshua knew the very scripture that Nathaniel was reading when he sat underneath the fig tree, right? And unless Yeshua was a great man of God, he could not possibly have such knowledge. So by calling Nathaniel an Israelite in whom there is no guile, Yeshua directed Nathaniel's attention to Jacob, one of Israel's forefathers. The story of Jacob is found in the book of Genesis. Uh, from there we know that Jacob was an individual in which much guile was found. Jacob also was the first person to be called an Israelite, right? As, because God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Once Yeshua made the connection to the fig tree, Nathaniel understood immediately that by calling him an Israelite and by using the word guile, Yeshua connected him to the story of Jacob. That amazed him because when he was sitting underneath the fig tree, he was studying a certain section out of the book of Genesis, where Jacob's story was told. And the exact scripture that he was reading became evident from Yeshua's words in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. When Nathaniel was sitting under the fig tree, he was studying Genesis chapter 27 and 28. Genesis chapter 27 verse 25 tell us, that Jacob exercised guile, and as a result of it, he was forced to flee from his home. That's chapter 27, verse 43. On his way, he passed uh, 
he passed into Bethel, Bethel, right? And decided to spend the night there. There he had a dream in which he saw angels ascending and descending. So Yeshua came along and made it clear to him that he knew exactly what Nathaniel was doing. Nathaniel understood that Yeshua knew what was in his mind before he met him and drew the only possible conclusion in front of him was sending a great man of God, perhaps a prophet, perhaps he didn't know. Few words about Nathaniel. He lived in the city of Cana. We know it from John 21.2, which is a small town right next to Nazareth. So he was familiar very well with the town. He was the son of Telmayon. His name, Nathaniel, means still a gift of God. Sometimes he is identified with Bartholomew, although there is really no ground for it. He is mentioned only in the Gospel of John. Here are a few more points concerning this account before we close. Okay, Number one, Jacob's ladder had the, the top of the ladder was in the heavens. This is Genesis 28, 12. And God himself was standing over it. And this is Genesis 28, 13. The heavens were definitely opened. According to the rabbis, the idea of the angels ascending and descending is there to convey a picture of them used as the angels, used as messengers from heaven to bring knowledge and revelation and power to mankind. Okay? Number two, Jacob actually spent the night in a place called Luz, but it is described in the text as Hamakom. This is chapter 28, verse 10. This literally means the place. Hamakom, just like the phrase Habayit, meaning the house, became an idiom in time. Okay? Uh, one phrase refers to the temple, that's Abayit, it's the, it's the house, but it's the house in Israel, the house of God, right? Right? And that refers to the temple. And Hamakom, which is the place that God ordained for sacrifices, refers to God himself. Number three, Jacob appropriately then changed the name of that place to Bet El, Meaning the house of God, when when he when he woke up, he explained it by saying, "Quote: Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it." And he was afraid and said, "How awesome is this place! This is no none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heavens." And this is um, Genesis twenty-eight seventeen to and eighteen. So the rabbis accordingly concluded that Hamakom in Jacob's dream was the seat of God's futuristic temple. Okay. Uh, according to the Genesis, the ladder, ladder or, originated in heaven, was set towards the earth and was placed there by God himself. It was not there by chance, right? The, the ladder was connecting heaven and earth. 
implying that there was a means of communication, communicating upward from the earth. Uh, it provided the means for mankind to raise themselves spiritually, right? Some say that in the same manner, Yeshua could be seen here as the ladder because he also came to connect heaven and earth to bring people back to God. Okay, so that's a study for this morning. Um, I usually take questions, but we don't have time for it. So if you have any questions, I think Andrew can direct you how to do this, and I will make sure to get back to you. Thank you for listening. Have a nice day now.